Good morning. So today we are coming to the end of our study in Isaiah. And we've been in Isaiah a little over a year. And when you consider that there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and when you look at the content in the book of Isaiah, and when you consider the fact that we weren't preaching in the book of Isaiah every week. We went through Isaiah like that. So one of my heroes in the faith, uh, John Piper, preached through the book of Romans, and it took him eight and a half years. And I bring that up for two reasons. The first is Isaiah could have been a lot longer. Uh, the second is we're actually transitioning, and we will be preaching through the book of Romans starting um, in a couple of weeks. And so uh, it's funny because my home group actually has been going through the book of Romans and Lord willing, we are going to finish going through the book of Romans mere days before we pick it up again uh, in, in the preaching series. So it's okay. We've probably forgotten most of it, so we could stand uh, to hear it again. So Lord willing, we are going to finish Isaiah today. I'm going to preach through all of chapter 66. But I want to briefly recap, since we're closing out today, some of the high points uh, through our study in Isaiah before we dive into chapter 66. So we see in the book of Isaiah, God's people on the brink of exile. And Isaiah is both calling out their sin and imploring them to repent. He warns them of God's judgment, and he offers hope in the future redemption of those same people. He points them to this future with prophecies that will, will find their fulfillment in both the short term and in the long term. And in the short term, God's people who will be exiled from their country will return to that country. And in the long term, God's people exiled from God Himself by their sin, will be redeemed to Him. And these prophecies are so many and so specific that they could only come from God Himself. Isaiah tells us of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, the anointed one who will come into the world and take away our sin. Isaiah tells us about Jesus before Jesus was ever even born. And from Isaiah, we see that this Messiah will come unexpectedly. A child born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. Even more unexpected, the first time this Messiah comes, He suffers. He will be According to Isaiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But he's going to bear the sorrows and the griefs of his own people. And he will save them from those very same sorrows, from their sin. But when he comes again, he'll come in his full power to judge the wicked and to redeem his people. God promised these things through Isaiah, and many of these things have already been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And 
all of the rest will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. So now, Isaiah 66. If you want to open your Bibles, you can camp out in Isaiah chapter 66. I'll read a few other uh, verses here and there, but for the most part, we're just going to stay in the whole chapter. So follow along with me as I read. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, they didn't listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children." Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. 
For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lude, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. They shall go out and look on dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, and fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Let's pray. Father, we've already come before you and sung songs about what a great God you are and confess to you that we are sinners. And so we echo again Brother Mark's prayer. We cry out to you asking for help. Help us to tremble at your word. Help us to sit under your word and to take it in. Father, help us to conform our hearts and minds to the truths that we find in your word. Father, we ask for your help because we know that we can't do this on our own. God, meet us here. May your spirit reveal to us the truth of this text that we may honor you by glorifying the name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. So this chapter really could have been broken up into about four sermons, um, but we're going to cram it into one. And I think with that, there are four main points in this chapter, and those four main points are going to match the four sections that I'm going to try to show you in this text. And these four sections are going to show a contrast between true believers and false believers. So four points, four sections, true believers versus false believers. Point number one, true believers are humble. True believers are humble. In verse one, God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you know what my footstool is? My footstool is a footstool. It's a little bitty thing that I put my little bitty feet on. The earth is not little. If God is saying that the earth is His footstool, He's saying, I'm big. I'm God. Majestic. Mighty. 
big. This is figurative language where God is expressing his godness. And so he's saying, if heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, if I'm God, what is the house that you would build for me? God is saying, if I'm God, you can't contain me. I am the God of the universe, and you think you can build a house and shut me up in it? No way. So who's he talking to here? Well, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to his people. He's talking about the temple, his earthly dwelling. And so he continues on. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. He's saying, you think that you can shut me up in a house? I created the house. I created you. This is a subtle indictment, which is going to become a lot less subtle in verse 3. But it's a subtle indictment of his people. He's accusing them of putting him in a box. They think that they can manipulate God. They say, well, we have this temple, and we have these laws, and these rituals, and these sacrifices, so if we just dot our I's and cross our T's, then we will put God in our debt. He'll owe us. But what does God say? Second part of verse 2. He says, this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. True believers are humble. God is not looking primarily at what we do. He's looking at our hearts. He's looking for humble obedience. Samuel understood this. It was loud and clear to him. 1 Samuel 15.22 To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Even Solomon, the guy responsible for building the temple, understood this. He says in 1 Kings 8.27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house, the temple, that I have built. God cannot be contained. He cannot be manipulated. We come to God on His terms, not ours. So rituals and ceremonies, even the ones that God put in place, are not as important as humility, contrition in spirit, and trembling at His word. God makes this crystal clear in Isaiah 66.3 when He says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. <clears throat> this is absolutely astounding. Slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, and making a memorial offering of frankincense are all good things. More than that, there are things that God has commanded His people to do. So what is the problem here? The problem 
is the people are not humble. They're not contrite. They don't tremble at his word. And God is saying that rather than offering these things, they might as well be murdering, breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, and blessing an idol. For those of you keeping score, two of the Ten Commandments are explicitly violated here, namely murder and idolatry. And offering pig's blood would be offering the blood of an unclean animal, a big no-no. And breaking a dog's neck, I mean, that's not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's not good, right? It's sinful. And so their actions, they feign service to God, but their hearts are far from Him. And God is saying the heart is far more important. So true believers are humble. True believers are humble, but false believers are hypocrites. And God is calling out the hypocrites. And He's saying, if you're not humble and contrite and you don't tremble at My word, your sacrifices and offerings are worse than meaningless. They're actually sinful. God is saying, in this abomination, you've chosen your own way and your wicked soul delights in this wickedness rather than in me. So they go through the motions to appease God, to avoid His harsh treatment. But look in verse 4. I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. So God is saying, the very thing you're afraid of, the reason that you're doing these rituals, the reason that you're making these sacrifices is to avoid judgment. And that is the very thing that you'll receive. Instead of coming when I called, instead of listening to my words, you did what was evil and you chose that in which I do not delight. So what about us? How many of us are here this morning because we have to be? Nobody's going to raise their hand. I figured some of the kids might. Um, Jack just raised his hand. Appreciate you. So maybe some of us were uh, compelled to come by our parents. For those of us who came willingly, maybe we came because we feel like it's what we're supposed to do. How many of us read our Bibles regularly because we feel like it's what we're supposed to do? How many of us begrudgingly give because we feel like it's what we're supposed to do. So I have to confess, I do all of these things. So some days I'd rather be in bed, right? There's hours and hours of football coverage on this morning leading up to the playoffs. It'd be nice to stay and watch that. And when I read my Bible, I take my little sheet that has all the reading that we're supposed to do and I mark it off and I feel so proud of myself. Even if I couldn't have couldn't tell you a single thing from one of the passages that I read. And if you're shocked by any of this, you shouldn't be. I'm a sinner. And so are you. We're all sinners. And we're all going to have our days when we struggle. And we're all going to have our seasons when we struggle. And in those times, we humbly come before the Lord and we ask for His help. But listen, if all of the things we do these things that we do because we think they will please God, if we think we're doing these to put God in our debt, we are sorely mistaken. 
All of the things that we do with a lack of humility, contrition, and trembling, if that characterizes us all of the time, God looks at those things and calls them abominations. It's also an extremely precarious situation we find ourselves in because oftentimes going through the motions, just like the Jews, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel as if we're honoring God even when we aren't. We can't put God in a box and we can't think that we can put Him in our debt by doing a bunch of good stuff. The moment we arrogantly attempt to earn favor with God through good works is the moment those works are no longer good. They become abominations. But we also can't go the other way and put God in a box by presuming upon His grace. I say this all the time. You cannot out-sin God's grace. And that is absolutely true. There is nothing you can do. Nothing that you can do that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus. But to presume upon the grace of God is to continue, continue sinning as if there will be no consequences. So maybe you pay, prayed a prayer at some point asking Jesus into your heart, but you never actually submitted to Him as the Lord of your life. God is calling both people, those who presume upon His grace and those who rely on works, He's calling both of us to humble ourselves, to tremble at His words, and in fear and reverence, turn away from our sin and truly put our faith in Him. True believers are humble. Point two, true believers hope for the future. In verse seven, we see a picture of a woman giving birth. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And this is weird. This is not how this usually happens. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? So whatever is happening here, it's happening quickly and unexpectedly. Excuse me. I think like half the people in the room are coming off a cold, and I'm, I'm one of them. Um, continuing in verse 8. Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. So what is it that's happening quickly? A nation is being birthed. A nation is being formed. And remember the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to a people who are about to experience exile. They're about to be ripped from their homeland. So this promise of a nation may have seemed odd to them in their presence, but it's about to become a sweet promise to them. This entire book, the book of Isaiah, speaks of the coming Messiah, the shoot of Jesse, the second King David. And they're going to get all that, but it's going to happen in a way that they won't expect it. The birth of this nation is going to come on the heels of the birth of a child, a baby born in Bethlehem. And that child, 
The first citizen of this new nation is God in the flesh. Come to dwell with us. And that's not what the Jews expected. But it's what they got. And on the heels of Jesus' birth, a new nation exploded onto the scene. A nation not identified by shared culture or geography, but a nation identified by allegiance to the God of the universe. And this is a spiritual nation, a church, and it grows quickly. The explosion of Christianity in the first few centuries of the church is a partial fulfillment of this very prophecy. It came quickly, and it came unexpectedly. So who's responsible for this? Well, God is, of course. Look in verse 9. God is saying the woman is pregnant, she's ready to give birth, and he says, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb? And this is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God is saying, I made you a promise, I have fulfilled that promise, and I will continue fulfilling that promise. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. Regardless of the coming circumstances, rejoice. God is saying to his people, things are about to get really bad. But I'm here, and the suffering will pass. You're mourning over her now, Israel, Jerusalem, but soon you will rejoice. You will nurse and be satisfied. You will drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. God will do this. God will satisfy. How? Verse 12, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. God paints this beautiful picture of a child with its mother, satisfied, joyful. It's not that way now, but it will be. True believers hope for the future when God himself will comfort us as a mother comforts her child. (coughs) Verse 14. You shall see... And your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be, shown, shall be known to his servants. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. God's presence will be real to his people in a way that it isn't right now. This is the thing that we have to look forward to. We get to be with God. And sure, we'll be satisfied and we'll be joyful and our present struggles will be no more, but all of that is nothing compared to being with God, to being with Jesus. Getting there is not going to be easy. We're going to have struggles, like Isaiah warned, but we look to the future nonetheless. So true believers hope for the future. False believers only hope is in the present. They, they're going to have a different fate. The end of verse 5 tells us that they will be put to shame. Verse 6, there will be a sound of uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, (coughs) the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And while verse 14 tells us that the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, 
the true believers, it also tells us that he shall show his indignation against his enemies. True believers hope for the future. False believers can only hope for the present because the future means their doom. The future means their judgment. The true believer has hope. The false believer is without hope. So, believer, do you hope in the future? My family and I went to Disney World um, a few months ago, and it was a fairly long trip, and I hate to drive, and we drove. So it was fairly grueling. I mean, as grueling as riding in an air-conditioned car with a good suspension on an interstate can be. But we stopped at Starbucks, and we stopped at Chick-fil-A, and we got some candy at the gas station. So there were nice little breaks there on the way to Disney World. And all of that was good, but of course those stops were not the purpose of the trip. So what if I told my kids all about Disney World. All the rides are amazing. There's Space Mountain and there's the Haunted Mansion. It's the happiest place on earth. What if I told them that and then got like two hours into the drive and said, you know what? I really hate driving. Let's just turn around and go home. What if we got into the gas station and I said, hey, this place seems fun. They've got bathrooms. They've got plenty of food. You guys can go play out by the dumpster in the back. Why don't we just stay here for a few days? So, believer, do you hope for the future? Hope for the future is the only thing that makes the grueling drive bearable. If you give up and turn around two hours into the drive, then you are not a true believer. Do you hope for the future, or do you only hope for a better present. If all of your worldly dreams could be fulfilled, money, career, health, family, being the best athlete at your school, being the most popular kid at your school, whatever it is, if you get everything that you ever wanted on earth, would that be enough to distract you from heaven? If the candy at the gas station distracts you from Disney World, then your hope is not for the future, but merely for a better present. If this is you, you are not a true believer. True believers are humble. True believers hope for the future, but true believers are also sent. Jack, I'm going through this faster than I thought I was going to since I'm coughing. Would you come fill this up for me? Got to put his shoes back on first. Okay. He gets really comfortable. So true believers are sent. Point number three, true believers are sent. Look starting in verse 18. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. God is gathering to himself a called people. 
Remember who Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to God's people, the Jews. And so when he starts talking about God gathering all nations and tongues, that's a really big deal. We're 66 chapters into this book, and Isaiah has mentioned calling the Gentiles dozens of times. And that doesn't even count the number of times that those of us who have preached through this book have brought this up. We're about to start the book of Romans, so you're going to continue to hear that. But you need to understand this promise here to all nations and tongues is a big deal because it's a promise to us. If you're a Jew and you're hearing this from Isaiah, this is shocking. The Jews were God's people. They were set apart. They were God's flock. But Jesus told his disciples in John 10, 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, the Jews. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock brought together, Jews and Gentiles. And of course, there will be one shepherd. God is calling a flock from all over the world, a diverse people, to himself. And what does he say he's going to do? Thank you, buddy. Is the lid secure? Okay. I'm going to spill it on myself. So what does he say he's going to do? It would be a good prank, though, if you did that. Um, He says he's going to set a sign among them. What sign? The cross of Jesus Christ. God did something surprising, something completely unexpected. He sent His Son in the flesh to live a perfect life on earth, but that Son died. He died a sacrificial death on the cross. Of course, He did not stay dead. On the third day, He rose from the dead and defeated death forever. I say God did something Surprising, and it did seem to surprise the Jews in Jesus' day. It surprised them so much that they didn't even recognize him, didn't even recognize that he was the long promised Messiah. But it wouldn't have been surprising to them if they just paid attention to God's word, if they had trembled at the word of God, if they had trembled at the words in Isaiah 53 that tell us that this Messiah, <coughs> this suffering servant, would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, and that he would be pierced for our transgressions. If they had trembled at the words in Isaiah 53, they would have known that the punishment we deserve, the chastisement, would be visited upon him, and that his suffering would bring us peace. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he offered himself willingly. Through Jesus' sacrifice, the will of the Father prospered in His hands and many will be accounted righteous because of Jesus' obedience. God set a sign among His people, a cross, to gather them to it. To do this, to gather His people around the cross, He's going to send His people True believers are sent. Look again in verse 19. For them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, who have not heard my fame or seen my glory. (coughs) So God is going to send true believers 
to make new believers. And what's the significance of all of the nations mentioned here? The significance is that they're not Israel. You could replace this entire list with not Israel. These are Gentile nations. This is yet another reminder that God is sending his people all over the globe so that God's people can tell other people about God. This is like a, a, like a proto-Great Commission. It's like the Great Commission before the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then look at the end of verse 19 in Isaiah 66. (coughs) They, the true believers, shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers, new brothers, Gentile brothers, from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And then skip to the end of... 20. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So not only does this echo the Great Commission, it, it sounds so much like what Paul says in Romans 15, 16, when he says that as the apostle to the Gentiles, he made an offering of the Gentiles. Our evangelism is an offering to the Lord. But hold up, it gets better. Of these new believers... God says in verse 21, Some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites. These Gentile brothers and sisters, you and me, we all come to the Lord with equal privilege. This is our inheritance. We are adopted into the family of God on equal footing with those who came before us. Brothers and sisters under Christ. True believers are sent. False believers are slain. Jump back up to verse 15. (coughs) The Lord will come in fire to render His anger in fury and His rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. So believer, do you go? Do you declare God's glory before all who will listen? And look, I'm not saying we're all missionaries. I mean, you hear that sometimes, that we're all supposed to be missionaries, and that sentiment is good. The idea is that no matter where we are, we should tell people about Christ. But to be a missionary, in my mind, means to go somewhere different, usually to a different culture. Oftentimes, there's a different language um, where you go. But we have a word for someone who doesn't go, who stays right here and spreads the gospel, and that word is evangelist. We are all called to be evangelists. Missionaries are just evangelists who go somewhere else. And I pray that God would call some of us to be missionaries. But whether or not God calls you to the nations, there is no doubt whatsoever that He has called you to your neighbor. So believer, do you share the gospel? And by share the gospel, I mean actually use words. So I'm sure you've heard this quote falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. 
Use words if necessary. Oh, it sounds so clever, but it's absolutely ridiculous. The idea, I think, is actions speak louder than words. So just be a good person and treat people well, and those actions will preach the gospel. And there's a point to be made there. Our actions are important. Our actions should back up our words. They shouldn't contradict them. But listen, if any of you have ever had an experience where someone comes up to you and says, I just saw you help that little old lady across the street, and I gathered from that that you believe that all mankind has sinned and falls short of the glory of a holy and just God, and that God came in the flesh and died on a cross so that our sins might be forgiven, and he was resurrected on the third day that we might live with him forever. If something like that has ever happened to you, you've got to tell me what you're doing because I'm not doing the whole actions speak louder than words thing right, clearly. That's not how it works. God has ordained that the way that people are saved is that they believe. In order to believe, they have to know. And in order for them to know, you have to go and speak and tell them about Jesus. There are lost people all around us. It takes almost no effort whatsoever to surround ourselves with those who need Jesus. We now need simply open our mouths. And I have to be honest with you and God. I'm disobedient to the Lord when it comes to evangelism. In all seriousness, pray for me. I don't share the gospel as much as I should. And maybe you're like me. So let's commit to one another to do better and hold one another accountable as a church to share the gospel as the Bible has clearly called us to do. True believers are humble. True believers hope in the future. True believers are sent. And both true and false believers live forever. Point number four. Both true and false believers live forever. Look in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. The new heavens and the new earth will remain after Jesus returns, after judgment has been dispensed. This will be a cosmos renewed for the people of God to worship their God. And that's good news. What's really good news is that the new heavens and the new earth are filled with those people, with those offspring, with those true believers. The same offspring that came quickly in verse 7 will populate this new heaven and earth and will remain. We will live there forever. This is a restoration of the Garden of Eden. Sin, the effects of sin and the fall are undone and God's people are redeemed to live with Him forever. God's people will celebrate in worship forever. Look again. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. True believers live forever, but we don't just live. We live in the presence of God 
in worship forever. What about false believers? Well, false believers will live forever as well. True believers will live in eternal worship, and false believers will live in eternal torment. Verse 24, Their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In verse 15, we're told that God will come and judge with fire. And in verse 24, we're told that the fire will not be quenched. This is hell. The Bible is clear that hell is a literal place where judgment by fire takes place and it lasts forever. So how does one get to hell? The beginning of verse 24 tells us, And they, the true believers, shall go out and look on the dead, the dead bodies of the men, the false believers, who have rebelled against me. So the book of Isaiah ends the same way that it began. In Isaiah 1, verse 2, we're told that God's children have rebelled against Him. And in 66, 2, we're told that they have failed to tremble at His word. And here we're told that they are condemned because they have rebelled against God. The eternal consequence for those who rebel against God is unquenching fire. And something else that's interesting, peculiar, in this verse is that the true believers look on the false believers who are in eternal torment. It's as if the cemetery where these dead but not dead false believers, where they're in eternal torment, it's as if that cemetery is right next to the city of God. And as the true believers are coming and going, they look on the false believers in torment. And this is obviously a really grim picture, but this isn't a helpful, illustrative reminder to true believers exactly what the cost is of not believing. Point four is is a good place to close, um, probably because it's the last point in the sermon outline. Um, But it also ties together the other three points pretty, pretty directly. So true believers live forever with God because true believers humble themselves before God. False believers suffer eternal torment because they do not humble themselves before God. True believers will live eternally with God because they hope in the future. False believers will live in punishment forever because they do not hope in the future. True believers will live forever with God because someone who was sent obeyed that call and shared the gospel with them. False believers live in eternal suffering either because the gospel was never shared with them or because they heard it and they rejected, rebelled against God. So will you be with God forever? Have you humbled yourself before Him and trembled before His Word? Do you hope for the future with Him rather than, rather than just a better present here? Do you have an urgency in your concern for those who have never heard and you have that urgency to the point where you're actively sharing 
Jesus with those who are headed to eternal torment. These are the marks of a true believer. Let's pray.